Very good. Very good. Good job, guys. Ah, you can be seated. Gee. <laughs> I'm Shane Willard, not Mick Jagger. <laughs> hey. <laughs> All right, Luke chapter 2. Yeah. Luke chapter 2. I want to say something about our seminar this week. Listen, you need to be out to these things. Um, I, I, I've got something to say. And um, I'm not speaking this week because I have to. I actually have something to say. And we're going to talk, um, talk about leadership and God's biggest idea, like our, our part in that. And, and we've got so much to talk about, and there's so many things, and it's going to all build on one another um, until next Sunday. Next Sunday night in particular, I'm going to deliver the most important message I deliver in the whole world. Everything's going to deliver, going to build up to that. And um, there's going to be stuff every night that is going to be integral to your walk with God. I promise you, you will not be disappointed about one night. Nothing will be a waste of time, and uh, we're, we're going we're gonna to be out here just going for it. Um, our resource table back there, we've got, um, we got some great stuff back there. Um, there's a couple of particular titles I, I want to tell you about because um, people ask me about them. Um, one is called Boiling Point. I have a six-disc series back there called Boiling Point, and I, I, I'm not preaching on it, so people don't, you know, they, they, they pick it up and say, what, what part of this? It's a six-part series on how to live stress-free. On, on, de- on defeating stress in your life. And sometimes, sometimes we need deep theological teaching, and sometimes we just need a reminder of what God's Word says about how to make a sandwich. You know what I'm saying? And, and so that, that, um, that series uh, deals with those kind of issues. I also have a series back there called Why Believe? And if, like, you're a real, um, if you're a real mental person, I, like when I say mental, I don't mean like, hey. I, I, I mean like intellectual. Um, you know, a lot of times we don't even know where our... Christians, they follow God. They, they just believe the Bible because their pastors told them to and whatnot. And then you run across somebody um, who, who says, where did you even get the Bible? Where did it even come from? And then we go, how do you know it's the Word of God? And so all we know to say is, well, we know it's the Word of God because um, it says it is. And then they go, well, who cares? I could write a book and say it was God's Word. Like, what difference does that make? And so that series is four discs, and it, and it examines where we got the Bible. The Bible you're holding in your hand, where did we get it from? Where did it come from? And, and why is it reliable? And, and how reliable is it compared to other historical documents that we take as as, as, as absolute truth. So, um, and so you'll, you'll enjoy those. All right. Are right, you guys ready to go? Luke chapter two. Luke chapter, I realized that um, in, in my walk with God, that, that we needed to start challenging folks to not be a group of people on their way to heaven. Uh, although that's true. Like, but the last thing you want is to be known in Hastings as a group of people who meet at 1200 Omahu Road who are on their way to heaven one day. What you would rather be known as is a group of people on Omahu Road who reveal God to everybody that comes in their contact. To be a group of people who meet on Omahu Road who actually actually minister the kingdom of God everywhere they go. That, that tonight after church, if you were to go to KFC, that everybody who works at KFC would know that they've been touched by the power of God. Not because you went in there and went weird, but because you went in there and were kind and compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love. That What would happen if, if Hastings um, thought, and maybe this is true, I mean, I, I'm sure it is. This is one of the great churches in the world. I'm so thrilled to, to be a part of what you guys do. As 
as a traveling person, um, you've you got to know this, and, and if this wasn't true, I just wouldn't say anything. I would just go on. But, um, but as a traveling person, I'm in churches all the time that I have to force what God's put on my life into it, in, into the life of that, and, and, and I struggle the whole time I'm there. But then there's some churches that you just flow with. You just fit very very easily with. And this would be one of those places. So I'm sure you guys are in a good place, but I'm just challenging us as a collective people. What would happen if Hastings um, thought of this place as, oh, oh, that place, oh, that's, that's a group of people there? And, and you wouldn't believe it. They meet people's needs. Like they reveal God. See, see, see the, the, the sign uh, individually, the sign that we wear around our neck determines how people treat us. And the sign you wear around your neck corporately will determine how people respond to you. Like the way, the way, the sign we wear around our neck. Like how many of you know people and, and, and they have a sign around their neck that says, don't mess with me tonight. So what do you do? You don't mess with them. And then those same people a lot of times get mad because no one talks to them. Well, the, the sign around their neck says, don't talk to me. So the, the, the way we come off, like I was in, a, um, I got a chance, I was in this really expensive art gallery and I was hanging out with some rich people. And, um, and at this really expensive art gallery. And, like, I was a fish out of water, man. Like, I looked the part, and, and, and I dressed the part, and I was with the social group that was the part. But how many of you know once you're in it, it's kind of like, this is so obvious, I don't belong. And, um, and, and the artist salesperson was going around person to person, and they were trying to sell us art. Uh, for, for our living rooms, and, and, and they, they walked around, and it was very high pressure. I was listening to what they were saying, and they were using words and stuff I didn't understand, and, and, and then it was this real high-pressure situation. So I, I'm looking at one of the pictures, and, um, and it said 3600, so I assumed that was 3600 and not $36, and, um, and, and so I'm going, oh, man, what am I going to do here? I'm going to have to tell this lady no, and then she's going to be mad at me, and there was all these thoughts were going through my head, and I thought, can I pretend? And I thought, then finally, once she started making her way over. I said, there's no way out of this. I got to get this lady off my back. So I thought, how can I get this lady off my back? So she had never heard me talk before. So, so, I, so she came uh, over and she said, hi, do you, know, do you like this picture? I said, hi there. Is this picture $36 or 3600 <laughs> I did my mouth like this and had this wild look in my eye. And she went, um, 3600 I said, for a picture? you got to be ever more kidding me. And, and, and she said, well, sir, this would be a nice, um, you know, uh, a nice accent to your living room, I'm sure. I said, listen here, lady, I'm from Goose Creek, South Carolina. And I said, I don't know much about acrylics or oils or watercolors. I know crayons. And I said, I'm going to tell you something. You might can help me, though. I need something for my living room. you got a big deer head stuff full of something I can hang up? Or maybe a Budweiser sign, something I can just hang right there in my living room. She said, no, sir. I said, well, that's all right. Then I'll just look around. She never messed with me the rest of the night. (laughs) Because of the sign I was wearing around my head, which said, uneducated redneck. Mm. And so so my question to us tonight, and the thing I want to challenge us with is this, is are we people who are content with going to heaven one day, or are we people who are committed to bringing heaven to earth to everybody around us? And, And one way we could do that is with the sign around our neck. And I want to talk about one aspect of that tonight by looking at Luke chapter 2. It's the Christmas story. Luke chapter 2, verse 1 says something like this, in the days of Caesar Augustus, 
there went out a decree that all the world should be taxed in the days of Caesar Augustus. Now, now I, I started going back and looking at what it meant to live in the days of Caesar Augustus. What was going on in the world when God choose, chose to reveal himself in Jesus? What was going on in the world around them? Well, well the world was being ruled by the Romans. And, and the Romans had done something spectacular. They had, they had established an empire that stretched from Spain to India with no electricity, no internet, no phone, no massive way of communication, they established an empire that stretched all the way across Europe and straight into India. It, it was one of the biggest leadership marvels ever. But, but the problem with their empire was the way they ruled it. Because there, there's a couple ways that you can try to rule the world. But, but the way they chose to rule the world was through terror and, and through oppression. Like there was, this one, there was this Roman general, his name was Germanicus. And Germanicus conquered the entire east side of the Roman Empire. And the way he did that was he did it by um, enslaving anyone of a different race. So if the color of your skin was any different than the Romans, then they would enslave you. And some say he took as many as 30 million slaves. He went in with swords, and if you agreed to be their slave, fine. And if you didn't, they would just kill you. Uh, and that was, that was Germanicus. There, there was another, um, another general named Pompey. And Pompey, in his tenure as a Roman general, he took 12 million slaves. There was another general um, named Titus. And Titus conquered Jerusalem and took 500 people a day as slaves. And one of the things Titus would do with his men is for amusement because his men would get bored. Is they would bring crosses along. And they would put crosses up and they would nail people to crosses in weird positions for amusement. This was Titus. Uh, uh, Cassius, there was a Roman general named Cassius. And, and he enslaved 30,000 people in a town called Magdala. And, and then he changed the law in Magdala. And he said that Magdala was going to be the headquarters of the Roman soldiers. And every person, particularly women, were now Roman property. They were Roman property, and the Roman soldiers could do anything they wanted with those women without any fear of recompense of consequences. That was in Magdala. Can, can anybody think of a disciple Jesus had that was from Magdala? It was Mary Magdalene, and she had been raped and used so many times by the Roman soldiers that when she finally shows up to Jesus, she's completely full of devils until Jesus sets her free. In the days of Caesar Augustus, there was a Roman general named Varus. And Varus, in 14 AD, he went into a city called Sepphoris. And Sepphoris determined that we were not going to bow to the wants of the Roman Empire. And so he took his platoon in there. And what they would do, we're going to talk about this in a second, is, is they would come in and they would say, get your coins out. Everybody get your coins out. And so everybody get their coins out. And on the coins, it would say, Caesar is Lord. And, and, and on the coins, they'd say, can you say that? And, and you're a good Jew. There's no God but Jehovah. And so if you can say Caesar is Lord, then, then they would just enslave you. If you could not say Caesar is Lord, um, Cassius had people um, outside putting, um, putting crosses in the ground. And so, and so they, if you couldn't say that, they would take you outside and crucify you in front of your whole neighborhood. This was the Roman general Varus. And in 14 AD, he went into a town called Sepphoris, and Sepphoris decided we're not going to do that. 
There was 2,000 people living in Sepphoris, and Averis went in, and he crucified 2,000 people in one day because they wouldn't say Caesar is Lord. So that, that happened in 14 AD. Can anybody think of who was 14 years old in 14 AD? Jesus, and he grew up in a town called Nazareth. And Nazareth is only 800 meters from Sepphoris. So when Jesus was 14 years old, likely he would have heard the screams of 2,000 people and the panic in his own town of 2,000 people being crucified in a day, in the days of Caesar Augustus. In in 18 AD, uh, Varus uh, burned down Emmaus, a town called Emmaus. So when Paul was on the road to Emmaus, just a few years before, Varus had burned that city to the ground because they refused to bow to the Roman empire. Uh, so, so who was ruling the Roman empire? It, the Roman empire is ruled by these generals, but who was ruling those guys? And it was the Caesars. The Caesars were, were ruling the Roman empire. And, and like, the first Caesar was a guy named Julius Caesar. And, and Julius Caesar said he was God. By the way, you'll see a, a, a running pattern here. All the Caesars said they were God. The problem is and what made them lose their credibility because you cannot rule the world with just political power. You can't rule the world with a gun. Everybody's tried it. It's never worked ever. In order to rule the world, you have to have a political power and you have to have a religious power. You have to have both to rule the world. And so what what happened is, is these guys tried to combine both. And obviously we know that the one combination of all those is Jesus Christ because he is both prophet, priest, and king. So he will rule the world one day fine because he will combine the political power and a kingly anointing with that of a priestly anointing, and that is what it takes to rule the world. So Julius Caesar was onto this, and Julius tried to, to do this, and he said he was God. Now the problem with all the Caesars saying they were God is eventually they all died. They all died, which made them lose their credibility, and the Roman Empire fell. So Julius Caesar, he said he was God. He said he was God. And, and he also invented the salad. He invented the salad. Um, I guess you'll get that in a second. No, I'm going to make a note real quick. That was not funny. Okay. Um, Julius Caesar, he said he was God. Now, Julius Caesar died in 17 B.C. In, in 17 B.C., Julius Caesar dies. And, and, and so there's this funeral for him. And when Julius Caesar dies, his son, Augustus Caesar, becomes Caesar. Okay? So Octavius, they, they change his name to Augustus Caesar, and, and he becomes the, in charge. And, and Augustus Caesar, which is the days of Caesar Augustus, this is when Jesus was born, Augustus Caesar was the first guy to really unite the whole world under one leadership. And, and Augustus Caesar said that since Julius was God, then he was the son of God. So in 17 BC, there was a guy who started making claims that God became flesh and he was in fact the son of God. He was in fact the son of God, which, which obviously Christians, if there was no Christians back then, but Christians everywhere would have been reacting to this. How can you, listen, can I just be honest? The, the church notoriously overreacts to everything. We just do. Like there's this movie out about a year ago and I don't remember what it was called, but people were telling me, you got to tell people don't go see that movie. You got to tell people don't go see the movie. Shane, Shane, we need to hear your voice from the stage. You got to tell people don't go see this movie. And I'm going, what's wrong with the movie? This movie, it's, it, it's trying to make a case that there is no God. And I'm going, ah, like God has never heard that before. And as if he can't handle it. Plus, you don't know anything about me. If I tell people don't go do something, the first thing they do is go do what I told them not to do. 
And so we overreact. And in this, in this situation, this worked out so good, we're going to talk about this for the next few minutes, is, is God let the Roman Empire finance the propaganda throughout the known world that it was possible for God to have flesh on. He said, we'll let the Romans do all the advertising, and then we'll show up with the real deal because their guy is going to die. But we'll let them give the idea. So, so, so Augustus Caesar, we'll come back to, to this in a second. We'll come back to Augustus in a second. And, and then you had a guy named Tiberius. You had a Caesar named Tiberius. And he was the guy that ruled during Jesus' ministry. In Josephus, it talks about Tiberius being the Caesar who was in charge of Pilate that ordered Jesus' crucifixion. That was Tiberius. Then you had Caligula. And Caligula was known for his debauchery and his terror, his, his extortion and his exposure of women. That was Caligula's claim to fame. Uh, uh, Nero was, was a particularly um, great one, and, and he, um, he, was, he tortured Christians. And what he did, one of his claims to fame, was he never wanted the light in his garden to go out, so the light in his backyard would never want to go out. And so what he would use to light his garden was Christians. So he would kidnap Christians, and he'd have them in a line around his house, and, and, he, and he would take a wooden stake, and he would stick it into their rectum, and he would plant them alive in his garden, and then he would douse them with fuel and set them on fire so that the light in his garden would never go out. And when one burned up, the next one was then taken so that the light would continually go. That was Nero. The Bible was not written in a political vacuum. This is the stuff that was going on when Peter wrote things like, respect and honor those who have the rule over you, for they are put there by God for God's purposes. That was Nero. Uh, Vespasian was another Roman emperor who said he was God, and then he died by falling down and hitting his head. Um, uh, Titus, he's the guy that conquered Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. Then, of course, you had Domitian. Domitian was emperor between, I think, about 75 to 95 AD, somewhere around in there. And, and Domitian said he was God, just like everybody else, but he took it one step further. And Domitian said that um, since I'm God, I should be worshipped. And, and, and people should not be allowed to live until they worship me. So he set up ecclesias, or churches, he set them up all around with, with monikers to himself, and he demanded that people come and give him an offering before they could go buy and sell. So before you could go buy your weekly groceries, you had to go make an offering to Domitian as God. And, and so the problem was, is in an empire that big, how would you know who made the offering and who wouldn't? So what they would do is they set up these ecclesias, and then when people came in and made their offering to Domitian, in order to, to determine who gave the offering and who didn't, they would give you, the people in charge of these worship centers, would give you a mark in your forehead or in your forehand. Now, the Jews didn't like this too much because there's no God but Jehovah. So the Jews called Domitian the beast who comes from land and sea. So in 85 to 90 A.D., in order to buy and sell, you had to worship and then take the mark of the beast. You take the mark of the beast, which is about the time when John was exiled on the island of Patmos and started writing about the end times. He's using a present-day reality to express a future implication. Interesting. Interesting. In the days of Caesar... Augustus. Now, now, now let's go back to, to Caesar Augustus. Okay, so 17 BC, his dad dies. 17 BC, his dad dies. And he ruled the whole world. He was the first person ever to unite the entire world. 
since Julius was God, that meant Augustus was the son of God who ruled the world and should be worshipped. This is what he said about himself. He had groups of people engrave his accomplishments on big stone tablets and monuments, and he hung them in the churches all around the empire. So that when people went to church to worship whatever God, there was a lot of different gods around. When people went to church to worship whatever God, ultimately the one they saw was Caesar. He put his accolades in worship centers, and he hung them on stone tablets. The, 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 the sages called him the one who was to come in order to bring salvation, peace on earth, and goodwill to all men. This is all written in history books. That they called him the one who was to come, who was to bring salvation, peace on earth, and goodwill to all men. They said that he would establish a kingdom of peace who would free men from all fear. This was all written about Caesar Augustus in 17 B.C. In, in 17 B.C., a strange star appeared in the sky. So they're at his father's funeral, basically, and this strange star appeared in the sky. Now, you've got to remember, in these days, they employed people to do nothing but look at stars. And so when this huge, strange star appears in the sky, there was no question that people would notice it. And so they're at this big party, and he had all of these witnesses, and they say, look, there's a strange big star appearing in the sky, and then it shot off. And Caesar Augustus said, that's proof that Julius Caesar was the son of God, was, was God, and he's ascending to the right hand of the gods. And so if this is proof, then, then I am the son of God, and therefore now I am God and should be worshipped. So in other words, Caesar Augustus substantiated his claims to his godness by a strange star in the sky that appeared in 17 B.C. His logic went like this, since I am the son of God, therefore I should be worshipped. And so what he did was he established a 12-day celebration of his birth that he called Advent. Hmm. So at the end of the year, there was a 12-day period of time where you had to go and you had to celebrate the birth of the Son of God at a season called Advent. Advent. And at Advent, Caesar Augustus offered a few things to his followers. First was forgiveness of sins. Second was a fresh start and a clean slate for the next year. And third was the opportunity to bring homage and gifts and worship him. Oh, and also, everybody put on green and red sweaters with snowmen on them. <laughs> so, so, so Caesar Augustus sets this thing up. Now, now I want you to follow me. Are you fo everybody with me, okay? You following me here that the historians of that day that are writing about the belief system of that day are saying that the people were saying about Augustus Caesar that he was the one who would bring salvation, peace on earth, goodwill to all men, a kingdom of peace who would free men from all fear. He would offer forgiveness and a fresh start to all of his followers who worshipped him. This was the days of Caesar Augustus. This was the day. Now, why would God choose these days to reveal himself in Jesus? Obviously, what he did was for 17 years, he let the Roman Empire shoulder the financing of such horrible and huge marketing propaganda that there's such a thing as God existing in a man. And it went through the whole world, not just a small part of the world. It went through the entire 
world. Now, now, if you wanted to get a message out, if you lived in, in 17 BC and you wanted to get a message out from Spain to India, there's no printing press, there's no internet, there's no mass email, there's no TV, there's no any kind of mass media, there, there's town criers, but that would be a far cry to get it from Spain. By the time that message got from Spain to India, you'd have it all messed up. So if you wanted to get a message out to the entire empire, how would you do it? And the way they did it was they printed it on coins. They printed it on their money because money would find its way through the whole empire very, very quickly. So anytime as people living in 17 BC, anytime you wanted to know what the government was trying to tell you, you would read your money and there was messages on the money all the time from the government. It was kind of like a local news bulletin. They'd print it on the money, send it out, and then you'd read your money, and that was the message the government was trying to get you to see. So on all the Advent coins, they wanted to print a message, and on that message, they put it on the coins. And the coins say, Caesar is Lord, and there is no other name on earth by which men might be saved. Caesar is Lord, and there is no other name on earth by which men might be saved. So they send these coins out everywhere. Oh, also, the historians say that the people believed that Augustus Caesar would be the bringer of peace on earth, goodwill to all men, a kingdom of peace, and he would also be a multiplier of bread for, for his followers. Do you see how... <laughs> If Jesus is living and teaching in the days of Caesar Augustus and that following, do you see how a lot of what he did in his life was not just teaching for living, it was actually a political revolution? (laughs) Do you understand that as a veteran, if, if, if the people believe that Caesar Augustus is God and that's substantiated by a large star in the sky... And then that as a result of that, he would be a multiplier of bread for all people. That all of a sudden you have a rabbi who was born and kings from other nations saw a large star in the sky to substantiate his birth. And then one of his first miracles is he's standing in a place and he has five loaves and two fishes and he multiplies the bread for his people. That this is not just meeting people's needs and letting them eat. This is a political revolution that's saying they've told you that the Caesars are God and I'm here to tell you they're not the real deal. I am. My birth was established by a large star in the sky, too. See, like, like it was just, it was God, um, how can I say this? It was God one-upping everything they were trying to do. Now, now, what was the problem with this? What was the problem with this? They said that he would establish a kingdom of peace, but did Caesar Augustus establish a kingdom of peace? No. He ruled with fear. He didn't rule with peace. He had a giant army with men with 70-pound packs who could go into a town called Magdala and rape every woman there without any fear of consequences. That's how he ruled the world. He, he, He ruled the world by teaching Roman soldiers to degrade people. See, in those days, everybody had two hands. Now, is that deep revelation or what? Come on. Now, everybody had two hands. The right hand was the clean hand. This was the one everybody wanted to sit at the right hand of something. It was the clean hand. The left hand was the dirty hand, primarily because they didn't have toilet paper. (laughs) 
Same in India today. Same in some other places today. And so they would use their left hand to clean themselves. And so that was the dirty hand. So, so in those days, in those days, if I wanted to challenge you to a physical altercation, if we were socially equal, I would slap you with my right hand because we're, it's my clean hand. We're socially equal. We're socially economically on the same page. But if I saw you as a slave or somebody underneath me, I wouldn't slap you with my right hand. I would hold you with my right and I would slap you with my left essentially hitting you in the face with my poo-poo hand, okay? And so it wasn't just I'm slapping you. It was a degrading, you are below me kind of thing. Remember when they came to Jesus and they said, teach us how to live? And he said, if someone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other cheek. In other words, there's two ways to respond. If someone slaps you on your right cheek, you can attack them back which that's going to get you killed, or you can just cop it, which that's going to take your dignity away. The way to handle, there's a third way. Historians call Jesus the rabbi with the third way. There's a third way to handle this, and the third way to handle it is to turn the other cheek. Why? A a Roman soldier attacking a Jewish person, would they use their right hand or their left? They use their left because they saw them as slaves. So he says, if someone slaps you on your right cheek, if I'm going to slap this man on his right cheek, what hand do I have to use? My left. So Jesus says, if someone slaps you on your right cheek, the answer is not to fight back. The answer is to turn the other cheek. In other words, make them slap you with their right hand. A Roman soldier would have died before he would have slapped a Jew with his right hand because it would have meant they would be declaring publicly we are socially equal. In other words, Jesus is saying, make it to where if you hit me again, you're going to slap me as equals and they won't hit you in the days of Caesar, Augustus. It was also, it was totally lawful in those days that that big Roman soldiers could come in here and had these big 70-pound packs. And they could say, we've got 10 miles to walk today, and so you're going to carry my pack. They never carried their own packs. They would get the Jews to do it. They'd say, you're going to carry my pack the next mile, and then you the next, then you the next, then you the next, then you the next, then you the next. So I need 10 people, and and we got a whole platoon of us here, so everybody's going to carry our pack a mile. It was lawful for a Roman soldier to ask a Jew to carry his pack a mile, but it was unlawful for for a Roman soldier to ask a Jew to carry his pack more than a mile, for that was cruelty. Because when you're raping and pillaging the whole world, you have to worry about being cruel. Hmm. So Jesus says this. He says, if someone asks you to carry their pack one mile, go two. In other words, get a reputation for going above and beyond. See, Roman law, according to Josephus, says this, that if if a Roman soldier was caught making a slave carry his pack more than a mile, he would be court-martialed and docked a week's pay. So Jesus says, you want to get one up on the Roman soldiers? Next time they ask you to carry their pack a mile, gladly do it. And at the mile mark, take off running. (laughs) And you'll have a Roman soldier chasing you down, trying to get you to stop. (laughs) Jesus was brilliant. He was brilliant in the days of Caesar Augustus. So Caesar Augustus was said to establish a kingdom of peace, but he didn't. He established a kingdom of fear. How did he get followers? How did Caesar Augustus get followers? Through forced confession. Forced confession. He'd have big guys come in and put crosses in your front yard. The Ku Klux Klan did not make that up. The Roman soldiers made that up. A cross in the front yard, ultimate intimidation. 
forced confession. How did he finance his kingdom? He financed his kingdom with oppressive taxes, extreme taxation on folks. Some historians agree that in Galilee, which is where Jesus grew up, in Galilee, between temple tax, wages tax, goods and services tax, that they were all paying about 80% of their wages to taxes. 80% of their wages was going to taxes. People were losing land that had been given to them since the book of Judges. And so what would happen is, is the people couldn't maintain the land, so very few rich people would come in, and they'd buy the land off these people, and then, and then they would either make them slaves on their own land, or the people would leave and go to another town and pick up a trade. How many of Jesus' stories are started by saying, the kingdom of God is like a group of people, and they're working this land that they don't own, but they really care about it? Everybody had been standing there going, that's us. He's talking about us. We're the kingdom of God. How can we be the kingdom of God? We're slaves. What's going on here? People were losing everything, everything. So they had to go make a living somewhere else. Now, with that as the backdrop, let's look at Luke chapter 2. And it happened in the days of Caesar Augustus. That's what we just talked about. In the days of Caesar Augustus. So in other words, everything we just described, describe what life was like in the days of Caesar Augustus. That all the world should be taxed as if they weren't doing that enough. This taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee to be taxed out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David. So what does that tell you about Joseph? What does that tell you about Jesus' father on earth? It meant that he had lost his land somewhere back, and now he was forced to work as a carpenter in Nazareth. This was vastly affecting him as well. And he took Mary, his betrothed wife, being with child. And while they were there, the days for her deliverance was fulfilled. And she brought forth her son, the firstborn, and wrapped him and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. And in the same country, there were shepherds living in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came on them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were grievously afraid. You've you got to understand that, that in, in Hebrew culture, an angel did not invoke comfort. We like to think about guardian angels and stuff. It makes us feel good. People say we see angels and things like that, and that's fair enough. That's great. But to a Hebrew culture, they did not want to see angels. Everywhere angels were to a Hebrew culture, it meant that death was imminent. The first angel in the whole Bible was what? It was an angel set to guard the tree of life in the garden. And if you came by, you would be killed. Uh, And there was angels over the mercy seat. And even if the high priest went behind that, he would be killed. There was angels sewn into the, 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 uh, the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Angels were sewn into there. In other words, the statement was, get back, get back back. Death is imminent. They put 30 foot wide angels over the top of the Holy of Holies on the outside, communicating clearly to people, back off. The only place I can find in the whole Bible that describes what an angel looks like is in Ezekiel. I think it's chapter 10. And Ezekiel has this vision. It says wheels within wheels. The word is ophelim within ophelim. Ophels, like ophthalmology. It was the word for angels. So you had cherubim, seraphim, and ophelim. So he said, I'm seeing these cherubim, and they've got ophelim all around them. And in his description of what an angel looked like, it said it had four faces. So you've got this creature with four faces, with eyes all over their body. 
eyes all over their wings, eyes all over their backs, four faces so you can't sneak up with them. And wherever an angel moved, the faces and the eyes went with them. And when the angel lifted his wings, there was eyes within eyes within eyes within eyes. If you saw that on TV, you would turn it off before your children saw it. That this was an angel. And it, so that's why any time, any, remember in Isaiah, an angel appears to him and it says that he fell down and pretended like he was dead. <laughs> like, no need, I'm dead already. <laughs> like like any time an angel appears to a man, it always invokes immediate fear and they always start the same way. If they're not going to kill him, if they're going to kill him, they're just going to kill him. If they're not going to kill him, what do they always say? Fear not, for I bring you good news. In other words, fear not, I'm not here to kill you. In other words, it was the exception to the rule. <laughs> when an angel appeared to you, you thought you were dead. So there's this group of shepherds, and, and this angel appears, and the glory of the lone shone around about them. It says they were grievously afraid. Now watch what the angel says. Now remember now, in the days of Caesar Augustus, this is what the angel says. And the angel said to them, do not fear, for behold, I give you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior and his name is Christ, and he is Lord. He is Lord. In other words, Caesar isn't Lord. Jesus is. To, to shepherds living in the days of Caesar Augustus, who was the propaganda about that who was Lord? Caesar Augustus was Lord. And so now you have angels appearing in heaven, and they're saying Caesar isn't Lord. Jesus is now, would the shepherds have been excited about that or sad? They would have been excited. Why? Because Caesar had promised peace on earth and goodwill to all men, but he didn't deliver. He delivered fear and oppression and 80% taxes and ultimate fear of losing land that had been in your father's possession since the book of Judges. He was not a good king. And now from the sky, it's being announced that there's another king. And this is a sign to you. You will find the babe wrapped, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was an angel and a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, listen to this phrase, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill to all men. In other words, God's saying, you want to substantiate yourself with celestial signs? I'll give you celestial signs. I'll give it to you. I'll put a large star in the sky. I'll get kings to come from other nations. We'll put a multitude of heavenly hosts. We'll have witnesses everywhere. How fast do you think the word would have spread? Listen, there's a new king in town. And who was threatened? Herod, who was the token king of the Caesar. Herod, what did Herod do? Herod ordered that all the baby boys should be killed. Now that tells you who the real God is, doesn't it? If I say I'm God and you say you're God, then whoever the real God is, he's the one that's not scared. He's the one that's not threatened. In other words, Jesus, even later in his life, they were saying, you say you're the king of the Jews. You say this. He goes, yeah, it is what you say. But, but da, 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 da. he goes, ah, whatever. But essentially, at Jesus' trial, this was Jesus' answer to everything. Whatever. At the end of the day, I'm going to win. You're going to lose. Do whatever you want to do. <laughs> Like, whoever the real God is, isn't afraid. 
And it says, it says this, it says, And it happened as the angels departed from them into heaven. The shepherds said to one another, Indeed, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing which has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And hurrying, they came and sought out both Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in the manger. And seeing, they publicly told about the word spoken to them concerning this child. And all those who heard marveled about the things spoken to them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things in her heart. Sometimes the best thing to do when God shares something with you is to keep it in your heart. Sometimes people can't handle it. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen. Why? Because they were living in the days of Caesar Augustus. In the days of Caesar Augustus. So Caesar Augustus versus Jesus Christ. Caesar Augustus ruled with violence. Jesus Christ ruled with peace. Caesar Augustus ruled by ruling and oppression Jesus Christ ruled by serving. Caesar Augustus said, my way of life says you gain authority by oppression. Jesus said, my way of life is you gain authority through generosity. Someone asks you to go one mile, go two. You'll be in charge. Hmm. Someone slaps you on your, left, on your right cheek, turn the other cheek. You'll be in charge. That you gain authority never through oppression, but through generosity and serving. Uh, uh, Caesar Augustus was all about government care. Who's going to take care of the poor? The government will. It was the start of socialism. The government will take care of the poor. Jesus Christ said, no, we need to have community care where we all meet the needs of other people together. But the biggest difference between Augustus Caesar and Jesus is one is dead and one lived. I don't have to tell you, history tells us that the Jews and the Romans came together and they killed Jesus. And they thought by killing him, they could ruin his way of life. But I can imagine the conversation between Jesus and Satan in hell. He'd be like, man, you thought that you could end my way of life by killing me. But let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm not going to get even at anybody who wronged me. I'm going to forgive them all. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to actually, I'm going to cook breakfast on the beach for the very people who abandoned me in four days time. And four days later, Jesus is cooking breakfast on the beach for the very people who disowned him at his time of need. And he didn't even bring the sin up. He just said, do you love me today? They said, yes. He said, let's go. Hmm. In the days of Caesar Augustus. So what does this mean for us? You say, well, this is all nice, Shane. It was a good history lesson. Um, what does this mean for us? It means that Jesus is Lord and he gets the last word. It means that Caesar doesn't get the last word. Jesus does. Who, who's the Caesar in your life? What's ruling your life other than God? What's causing you to feel driven by something else? What represents the entity in your life that takes you down the road you don't want to go to, the road of sadness and shame and guilt? That The message of Luke chapter 2 is this, is that there's a new Lord in town, and he's the real one. He's going to live. The other's going to die. Jesus gets the last word, not Caesar. So in other words, let me say it this way. Anger doesn't get the last word. God does. Lies in your head don't get the last word. God does. Unforgiveness doesn't get the last word. God does. Feeling disheartened doesn't get the last word. God does. When you're doing all you can do and it still doesn't work, God still gets the last word. Greed doesn't get the last word. God does. Failure can't have the last word. God does. Rejection can't have the last word. God does. Is Jesus Lord of your life or is the oppressor? Is Jesus Lord of your life or, or is the oppressor? 
Uh, where have we settled for the oppressor instead of the lordship of Jesus Christ? The, the, the oppressor rationalizes sin and keeps us in bondage. The oppressor tells us you can't do what's right. The oppressor tells us that your feelings rule you. That if you're feeling, just don't do anything you don't feel like doing. Just your feelings rule you. Uh, the oppressor tells you that you're in bondage to your emotions now. The oppressor tells you that you're the most important person in your universe. That's what the oppressor says. But that doesn't get the last word. If you would like, there's a real Lord and he's come to town. His name is Jesus Christ. And we are called to reveal him to the world and not the Caesar. Mm-hmm. That we're called to be a group of people who reveal the lordship of Jesus Christ, not the lordship of our slave driver. So let me just end this with a couple of application questions. Number one, what's oppressing you? What's oppressing you? Uh, Number two, is Jesus Lord or is the oppressor Lord? Do you realize I had this on my mind this morning, and that's why in my last prayer this morning, I, I talked about building a throne and there can only be one king. The Bible says that as we worship, we build a throne that God is enthroned upon it. Do you realize that in a kingdom, there's only room for one king? So wherever Caesar is Lord in your life, when you build a throne for Jesus Christ in it, there's only room for one king, and the oppressor leaves. Hmm. Who's, who is, who are, who's oppressing you? Is Jesus Lord or is the oppressor? Number three, who are you oppressing? Who are you guilty of being Caesar in their life? Maybe by our apathy, maybe whatever. But the last question I want to ask, and this is the most important question, is this. What does your coin say? What's the coin of your life say? If I was to ask the ten closest people in your life, if you could sum up the motto of that person's life in one sentence, what would it be? Does your coin say, my oppressor is Lord? Does your coin say, my anger is Lord? When people look at your life, let me ask it this way. If, if a Buddhist monk from China or Cambodia or somewhere, if, a, if an educated Buddhist monk was, who, who had memorized all the teachings of a rabbi named Jesus because he just wants to be educated, and if he looked at a video of your life, would he know that you're a follower of Rabbi Jesus or would he think you're a follower of anger, rage, resentment, malice, slander, filthy language? If, if, if we looked at a video of your life, what does your coin say? Does your coin say anger is Lord? Does your coin say rejection is Lord? Does your coin say depression is Lord? Does your coin say my emotions are Lord? Does your coin say, what does your coin say? Because the message of the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, is those things don't get to be Lord. Jesus gets the last word. And whatever, listen, it's so important, whatever the coin of your life says is what is getting passed around your community. And that is what is affecting everybody else. We can be a group of people that our coins say Jesus is Lord and not just lip service, our lives say Jesus is Lord and in that we become kingdom people because Jesus gets the last word and not Caesar. I bless you tonight to know that in Luke chapter 2 when Jesus decided to be born in one of the worst times in human history, Jesus conquered 
death, hell, and the grave. But bigger than that for us today, Jesus conquered Caesar. Do you realize that 100 years from this point, like 100 years from now, Christians were ruling the place? <laughs> By Constantine, Constantine's going, yeah, Christianity is the only way. <laughs> like, like, like Christianity, the, the way of Jesus Christ conquered not just death, hell, and the grave, but it conquered every oppressor in our life. I bless you today to know that, that you can go home tonight knowing that whatever your coin said before, it doesn't have to say it now. You can be delivered from all those things because Jesus is Lord and he wants that to be on our coins. Let's pray together. And Lord, you're the best. You're the best. Like truly the best. And we just stop and we repent for having something else on our coins. We repent, Lord, for for living life in a way that um, that, that we, we get to go to heaven one day and, and fully on everything else. No, you called us to a better life. Forgive us, God, for not being the people who carry the coins that say Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. May the coin of our life communicate to the world around us that Jesus is Lord, not by necessarily tracks and witnessing and all that stuff, but, but, by, but by our lives, the way we respond, the way we talk, the way we act, the, our compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love life. May that be the case, God. And Lord, I pray over this group of people, over all of us tonight, I pray for whatever's oppressing us, that it would be released now. And if there's oppression in this room, if there's someone who's being oppressed of the devil in his entire way, I pray that just right now as I'm talking, that you would release them from that hold, that that stronghold would be released from their life. And a deep inner knowing of knowing that Jesus is Lord of this situation, that deep inner knowing would just settle over us now.